Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hello, everyone. Um, I have a news item, a uh, small, small news item. Uh, there was data released by YouGov, the, the, which does public polling, about uh, the uh, a- approval ratings, for lack of a better word, of Supreme Court justices. Did you guys see this? No. Uh, doc- I didn't see this. Today? Um, it breaks down on a lot of different lines about, you know, approval rating among Democrats and Republicans and independents and things like that. But I wanted to say there was there was one metric that was just that asked that was a, a, a general public survey of, you know, a, if you hold a favorable, unfavorable or not sure sort of opinion of the justices. And one justice uh, inspired more indifference than anyone else. He's oh. like the. In what is effectively the most obscure justice of having no opinion at all. Do you guys want to hazard a guess as to as to who that was? Ooh, that's tough. I feel like there's strong opinions about a lot of these. I mean, was it Roberts because he's so down the middle? Well, and you, uh, I, did I did I hear you correctly that I think you gave away some of the game here? You said him, so um, oh, or he, yeah. So I mean, I guess we're we're. T- I mean. I don't know. I, you know, the, there's the new guys that everyone probably knows a little better, and then everyone knows Thomas. So I, I I'm gonna say it's either Alito or Breyer, and but Breyer's such a such a kooky guy that I I feel like <laughs> I feel like he goes into like Shakespeare spon- sonnets on the on the bench. So I don't I don't know. He's interesting to us, but it is in fact Stephen Breyer. Uh, oh. and, and and thank you for calling me out. I think I did say I, I think I did gender the identity of the person. Fifty six percent have no opinion of the man. He's a full seven percentage points ahead of Elena Kagan. So, like, he's the most, uh, he is the justice people are most indifferent about by a pretty wide margin. So he's he's uh, an absolute wackadoodle. I feel like he he is really interested <laughs> in IP stuff. So I feel like I yes. I feel like I interact with Breyer more than perhaps the uh, the average person. But yes. yeah, strange guy. I w- you wouldn't forget him if you ever hear him talk like during oral arguments. Um, so anyway, uh, congrats to him. Uh, we have a really interesting show today. I had a fascinating talk with our senior white collar reporter, Jack Queen, made his uh, pro se debut talking about a really fascinating, uh, really explosive scandal out of the Southern District of New York that um, was in a sanctions case and it deals with federal prosecutors mishandling evidence and misleading the court about it. It's led to a lot of chatter about how to sort of clean up discovery protocols and evidence sharing in, you know, the nation's elite federal prosecutor's office. Really good talking with Jack. Yeah, it was a really good story that um, Jack put together that's over on the site. So everyone should go read that, too. Um, but first, let's talk a little bit about um, we're going to talk about the First Amendment, which is always fun to talk about. But we're going to talk in sort of an icky context. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, the the. Uh, the tension between the First Amendment and the, the state laws that have been passed, uh, quite a few of them have been passed in, in recent years, um, that are designed to address the problem of non-consensual, uh, illicit, nude images that are released online. The problem that's known as revenge porn. Um, a, a California judge weighed in last week for the first time on one such case that was filed by former uh, Congresswoman Katie Hill. Um And there's a lot to talk about. It's a very interesting issue. So let's get into it. Yeah, I remember Katie Hill's name. This was a big scandal when it was unfolding, but it's been at least a year since this all happened. So refresh me on sort of the particulars here. 
Yeah, so she was elected to Congress uh, in the 2018 midterms, a, a Democrat from California. Um, but as you mentioned, she pretty quickly, uh, you know, resigned in 2019 over uh, these allegations of inappropriate sexual relationships with her staffers, um, both both in her congressional office, but also on her campaign. Um, one part of this scandal involved the release of photos of Hill. Um some of them nude. One showed her kissing the staffer. They were, you know, to a certain extent, they were evidence for the, the these accusations. Um, one of them purported to show drug use, that she was using marijuana. Um, uh, the photos were published by Red State, which is a conservative blog, and um, the Daily Mail, a sort of infamous British tabloid. Uh Hill admitted to the inappropriate relationship with with um, uh, at least one of the campaign staffers, and she did uh, resign, as you mentioned. But she pretty sharply criticized the leak of these photos um, as part of this. She she called them revenge porn and said they were, uh, you know, accused her ex husband uh, of of releasing them, saying that he had been abusive and that that um, you know she was in the process of divorcing him, and that this was retribution for that. Um, she she asked at the time for police to investigate how these photos got out, and she, at the time she vowed that she would take legal action over the over the release of them. A lot of unsavory uh, factors at play here for various reasons, which we will uh, certainly get into a little bit. But uh, you say she vowed legal action and uh, she she made good on her word. What did the what did the suit uh, say? Yeah, she finally sued in December um, uh, in California state court. She named her ex-husband, a guy named Kenneth Heslep, um, as well as the owners of the Daily Mail and Red State, the two media outlets, um, plus a Red State reporter named um, Jennifer Van Lahr, who was the actual person who had reported out the the story. Um, she accused the defendants of violating California Civil Code Section 170885, which is a mouthful, but it's a law that was passed in 2014 that created an individual cause of action against anyone who intentionally distributes media that, that shows nudity or sex, um, any media like that, that the subject of the of the photos or the videos had good reason to think would remain private. So basically the, the idea is here is anything that's that shows sexual or nudity um, that, that you intentionally gave out that the other person really believed you would not put out into the yeah. public. Um, the, the, the media defendants here, so basically not the ex-husband, um, the media outlets and the reporter, they pretty quickly responded by citing a key carve out to that statute. And that is the law doesn't apply if the material in question constitutes a so-called matter of public concern. And that's really the crucial thing here. And um, the, the other thing is that they filed these motions under the state's um, so-called anti-slap law. So that gave them a route to very quickly argue, hey, this case has been filed. It's challenging. It's, it's, it's trying to stifle our free speech rights, our right to report this. And so they were able to pretty quickly get a hearing in front of a judge, you know, to get this case tossed out. So right there you have sort of the the crux of this case and the reason why it's been pretty closely watched, which is it's a conflict between the privacy rights that are afforded under this kind of statute to someone like Katie Hill versus the speech rights of the media outlets that want to publish these images as part of their coverage of, of a congresswoman. Yeah, this is really interesting. It has a lot of shades of 
defamation and libel law here where it's similar considerations about public figures or public yeah. scandals. Um, but we did have an initial ruling. So what did a judge say about that that tension? Yeah, we got a tentative ruling on Wednesday. Um, the, the, the judge in the case said that she would likely grant um, the reporter's motion to toss out Hill's claims against her. And just the wording of the ruling basically seemed to suggest that the Daily Mail and Red State would also escape the case on, on similar grounds. The crucial holding here was that the judge said that the photos were indeed uh, a matter of public concern, since they so clearly had to do with this scandal, that that was really the issue here. So um, the quote, Defendant has established that the images are a matter of public concern as they speak to plaintiff's character and qualifications for her position, allegedly depicting an extramarital sexual relationship with a paid campaign staffer and the use of illegal drugs by a sitting congresswoman. Now, Hill had argued that the the the, the news outlets didn't have to publish the photos that that they could mm-hmm. you know they the, the reporter could have obtained them and described them and said look i have this evidence but i don't i'm not actually going to put them up on my on my website for the whole world to see but the judge found that argument unpersuasive the quote on that the fact that information to be gleaned from an image may be disseminated in an alternate manner does not equate to a finding that the image itself is not a matter of public concern so, um, as I mentioned before, it, it's it's this is a tentative ruling, and it only dealt with the individual reporter. It also doesn't, pretty notably, it doesn't apply to the ex-husband who he he did not file an anti-slap motion, one of these sort of free speech motions that the media people did, um, and he's involved in a much more sprawling legal battle with Hill. He's named in this case, but they have another case over a restraining order, and yeah. Um, but like I mentioned before, it is pretty clear that this same reasoning probably should um, or or will apply to these media outlets. Um, it's just a very interesting, uh, you know, it's the, the the tension here is is I think different than if it was a private person. You know that there is this yeah. this this sort of rare element here that it's not that it's a person's images just a random person it's it is a congresswoman and they are images directly tied to a scandal that ultimately led to her resigning from office so i think from that perspective from a you know it it is less fraught because there is more of that that free speech sort of um you know there is that public interest in knowing things about elected officials so um yeah it's it's early yet um but i think that this was a very interesting glimpse at, at a court trying to figure out where that line is, where the line between the free speech interest and, you know, th- this clearly, you know, in many contexts, very abusive release of deeply private materials. It's a case I'm sure we will um, be hearing more about in the future. In the next story, we're going to stay in the sort of digital privacy realm, though, in a way that's... Um a little more relatable than, uh, you know, accusations of revenge porn. Uh, this story settles on a lawsuit that accuses Google. You're familiar with Google, I assume, of uh, continuing to of, of continuing to collect user data even when you are using Chrome's incognito mode, which I think most people are probably familiar with. Um, a California judge denied Google's effort to dismiss the case last week. Um, basically, it it was rejecting Google's argument that users have basically consented to this. What is what is basically what what they say is this surreptitious data collection. So, it's a it's a question of how private you are when you go incognito and what the company's obligated to tell you. Lots of different strands. This is interesting because you know even the name incognito mode it does give you sort of this cloak of 
privacy and secrecy when you turn that on on your browser. Um, so I definitely want to talk about what the facts are here. Like, what is Google actually doing, and what do these cases allege? This is starting to this is starting to bubble up a lot out in California. There's a there's a handful of proposed class actions over that allege a few different things about Google's private browsing policies. There's some there's some variety between the claims, but generally they allege that the private browsing is not as private as the company holds itself out you know, holds it, holds it out to be, um, and that when you're incognito, your browsing history uh, and other data are being scooped up. Uh, while not by Chrome itself, but by various other tools like Google Analytics, their ad manager, other Google-based apps that are used by other sites. This stuff is all getting combed and Google has it, even though they they would give you the, the impression that they are not doing that. Um, it's important to clarify that for the purposes of what we're talking about today, it's it's not so important what Google what conduct Google is doing, but rather if they have made it fully clear to you that they are doing those things when you go private. So the company has pointed to its privacy policy and a number of other notifications uh, that it gives to users that they say alerts them to the limits of incognito mode. They say we are very clear about what is still happening when you go when you go incognito. Um, and that defense got put uh, squarely in front of the California federal judge in the case we're talking about this week. Uh, this is before Lucy Coe. So they just sort of said we make a lot of at a lot of at attestations and that should be enough. Well, yeah, it's it's a fascinating case and and uh, but it seems like from what i saw from the stories bubbling up from this that the judge was not receptive to google's arguments right yeah there's a lot of different um yeah she she denied the motion to dismiss which is why we're talking about it today um the case will will march on it's a privacy case they're seeking uh sort of an extraordinary remedy we'll talk about that a little later there's a lot of different components to Google's defense, as I just laid out, but I thought for our discussions, it would be good to focus on um, the so-called splash screen. And this is what pops up when you open an incognito browser. If you've ever done this, I think most people know what we're talking about. It's like literally in the browser, there's a couple bullet points about what it says is and isn't happening. So that screen says that Chrome will not save your browsing history, your cookies, your data, etc. What it does say is that your activity might still be visible to websites that you visit, your employer or your school, if you're using a computer on their network, um, or your internet service provider. But remember that we are talking about a case that alleges that Google itself is still collecting your data. And that is not made clear on this splash screen. They say other people, depending on what network you're on, might see it. But they but uh, it they, they do not clearly say that we, Google, are still scooping up your data. Uh, and Judge Coe, um, sort of that that is what she focused on as she allowed the case to continue. She said, quote, Although the splash screen states that websites may be able to see a user's activity, the splash screen does not state that Google sees a user's activity. Based on omission of Google from the list of entities that can see a user's activity, a user might have reasonably concluded that Google would not see his or her activity. And mm. near the end there, you can hear her using the, you know, when, when you talk about a reasonable user and we are at the motion to dismiss stage, this is not a, this is not a ruling on the merits yet. Um, there's more to it than that, than the splash screen, but that kind of holds through um, through Coe's entire opinion. C Google has not made it clear 
that it is doing this data collection during private browsing. And in many cases, it's giving users the impression that their data is secure and not being collected by Google. So we're, we're not at a final disposition here, but what can we continue to watch with this and the re related cases? I mean, it seems like a lot of big privacy concerns at play since so many people use Google's incognito mode and other similar things that other browsers offer. Yeah. Um, so the case, you know, it, it, it goes on now and there are a lot of them percolating out west about the private browsing policies and what they say and what they allow. And there are many legal issues still to sort out. The case we talked about today is seeking billions of remedies. It's way too early to say what kind of remedy they'll face. But there are a lot of bedrock privacy concerns here, as you say. I mean, the reason people try to or hope to conceal that stuff is, you know, you you many people, you know, sort of seek to not be so public about their political views, their sexual interests, things like that. This is stuff that is often associated with incognito browsing. Um, it's pretty well understood, I think, that Google and other tech giants have built their businesses on data and how they use it. And that makes people uncomfortable. But things like incognito mode are ostensibly meant to address those concerns. But if the company is not being clear on exactly what that means when you go incognito, um, it's going to start to lead to some legal headaches for them. And uh, we're seeing that uh, come to bear in California. Our main story this week focuses on an explosive scandal that unfolded in the nation's premier federal prosecutor's office, the Southern District of New York. A year ago, Attorneys there looked to have a solid case against a businessman accused of violating sanctions against Iran. But the case soon unraveled by revelations that the government mishandled crucial evidence and misled the court about it repeatedly. The full extent of the scandal was recently laid bare in unsealed court documents, and Law360's senior white-collar reporter Jack Queen uh, broke down the whole affair with an in-depth story. It was super interesting, and he joins us now to talk about the case and its bigger imp implications for the SDNY. Uh, Jack, welcome to Pro Se. How you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, first time, long time. Yes. Oh, wow. That's you. You're, he was not obligated to say that, ladies and gentlemen. He is my colleague. He's just being nice. Um, in any case, um, crazy story. Would definitely recommend everybody read it. Um, it's it involves a lot of um, sort of you know perceived and real malfeasance that we'll get into in a little bit. Um, before we get to like the more explosive part of this, though, it's a it's kind of an intricate case. So let's just lay out the basics. I mentioned it was a sanctions trial. What was the government trying to prove here? Sure. Yeah. So it's a case against this uh, Iranian businessman. His name is Ali Sadr. And the government was basically alleging that over the course of several years, he routed some $115 million worth of payments through offshore shell companies and so forth to evade Iranian sanctions on behalf of his father, who has a construction company in Iran. Okay. And those are the kinds of, you know, it's 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 not unusual for those cases to bubble up in the SDNY. It's obviously a hub of white collar crime and they handle stuff like that all the time. Um, and it went sideways here. But before we talk about that, I think it's important to lay some pretty basic ground rules because the scandal that we're, that is at hand today 
deals with the rules about sharing evidence uh, with the opposing side, and that became very central here. And I think it would be useful to lay out the 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 basics about what is expected of prosecutors when they're trying a case when it comes to evidence. Right. Yeah. So the most basic obligation they have in some ways um, is called their Brady obligations, which requires them to turn over any potentially exculpatory evidence to the defense. So it makes sense, right? It's not fair if the government has documents that undermine their case or point to innocence and they just sit on them. And Mm -hmm. it's uh, a fairly common type of prosecutorial misconduct. And it's also generally the most serious. It's the most likely to lead to a case being tossed or reversed on appeal or something like that. And, you know, in these types of cases, too, it's it can be tricky because they are handling millions and millions of documents uh, detailing all these transactions, emails and things like that. But they are required to check to see if any of them have exculpatory value and hand them over promptly to the defense. All right. So with that in mind, uh, this was, you know, like I say, I mean, they thought they had a pretty strong case and it started to unravel a little bit. Uh, how did how did evidence sharing come to the forefront here? What 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 exactly happened? Mm-hmm. So the, the short answer for how this whole thing sort of blew up uh, is it's just based on the disclosure of this one document in particular, which is where it all started. And that's called a GX 411 or Government Exhibit 411. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. it's a letter from a Turkish bank, Commerce Bank, to the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is an arm of the Treasury Department, flagging this suspicious $29 million transaction. Mm-hmm. And it requires us to back up a second here because this document was turned up years ago in a Manhattan DA's office investigation by state yeah. prosecutors. And in a sense, the Sodder case is sort of an outgrowth of that. And when federal prosecutors charged him, they deputized uh, a Manhattan state prosecutor, as named yeah. Garrett Lynch, as a special assistant U.S. attorney because he mm-hmm. had a deep understanding of all of these transactions that were in play, and he's quite an expert on this stuff. And throughout the investigation of Sodder, he is often flagging nice pieces of evidence for the trial team, saying, oh, we'll just yeah. take a look at this, we should introduce that. And he does this in January, a few months before trial. He emails along this document almost as an afterthought saying Mm -hmm. this, Hey, this closes the loop on something we were talking about. And then a week into trial on a Friday evening, the government's one day from resting its case. This prosecutor is organizing her inbox and she finds this email that nobody even responded to. And she sees the document and she says, Hmm, this could actually help us. I think it'd be good to introduce, but she and the rest of the team realized that it was never produced to the defense. And they mm-hmm. realized that this is because it's not actually from their federal subpoena return that was turned over. It is yeah. essentially, I don't want to say contamination, but it's kind of what it's like from this Manhattan DA's case. Yeah, it's um, a different authority. It derives from a different investigation. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the defense has never seen it. But they want to introduce it, so they decide what to do. And um, they decide to, quote, bury it in with some other previously disclosed documents that they're sending as a routine thing to the defense, saying, we're going to use these tomorrow, FYI. There's more than a dozen of them. And they don't indicate, though, in this email that this GX411 mm-hmm. is new. Okay. But the defense notices immediately. and. Yeah. They're demanding to know how long you've had this. Uh, They're calling it exculpatory, and they're saying this isn't the first time. Pretty soon, uh, Judge Allison Nathan gets involved, and she gives prosecutors until 10 p.m. to explain themselves as to how this happened. 
And this is also a key breakpoint because basically as these prosecutors are figuring out how to respond to the judge's orders and explain what happened, they make a couple of misrepresentations that will really come back to haunt them. Yeah, yeah. One, I, I, I wanted to make sure we, we were covering those, but, but, but continue though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the two things that they misrepresented are one, they indicated that they didn't realize that the document was new until the defense flagged it as new, which that mm. their internal communications show that wasn't true. And then um, when they respond to the court about how this happened, they have this letter drafted to her and the original version acknowledges that they didn't make it clear that the document was new. Minutes before they send it at 10 p.m., and there's a red line showing this, they change that to say that it was clear. Uh, okay. And so Monday morning rolls around, and Judge Nathan is pissed. And she's grilling them about this, and it's not going well. And the defense is telegraphing that they're going to go for a mistrial. And at this point, there are two unit chiefs who supervise, who supervise these prosecutors, and they're watching the hearing and... Afterwards, they're texting each other and saying, this is looking like it might be a mistrial. But then what actually happens? Um, I mean, did they uh, obviously you, you, you paint a very vivid picture in your story about the, the judge is really reading them the riot act. They kind of have to come with their hat in their hand. Um, mm -hmm. But she um, she she did let the she did let the case go forward. Right. She did. Yeah. And part of that reflects, I mean, you know. There's an understandable reluctance to toss something or declare a mistrial in the middle of COVID, too. It's important to point out a couple of jurors oh, yeah. had to be excused for getting coronavirus. This is in March 2020. And yeah. if you're in New York, you know what that was like. And so I think there was a, uh, a great desire to, you know, allow this to continue and get it done. So she gives an, a curative instruction to the jury, basically explaining what happened here. And mm -hmm. ultimately, uh, Sauter is convicted uh, on five of six counts. And... Um, but this is really not the end of the case at all. In yeah, fact, it's yeah, just getting well, started in some ways. Yeah, you 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 explain how you know it, it, the government is usually very happy when it wins case, obviously, especially in cases like this. But you explain that it was pretty short lived. Mm -hmm. uh, why? Yeah, whatever whatever victory lap they took was a short one, I suspect, because yep. at this point their credibility before the court is seriously in question, and the defense really pounces on this, because there are a lot of things that they have suspected about the evidence, and there are a lot of the fights they had pre-trial about the admissibility of these emails and things like that, and the defense really hammers on this in their motion for acquittal or a new trial, 145-page brief, just really going after the government, attacking what oh, they wow. call repeated and egregious Brady violations. And while this is happening, uh, the government is doing a full sweep of its files because they're pretty freaked out at this point. Uh, yeah. And what they find is ultimately some stuff that really dwarfs the production of GX411, which was important and had exculpatory value, but really pales in comparison to some of the stuff they found. So what kind of stuff are we talking about here? There are a couple of whoppers. There's a lot of small things, yeah. but the two sure, well, big ones. Yeah if, 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 yeah, if they file a 145-page document, they clearly have a lot of things in mind. <laughs> but what did the government find? It's interesting yeah. that the government discovered it itself um, and then brought that to the court. But what did they important. That's an important yeah. thing to note, too. And Judge Nathan gave them credit for this, is they did go back and um, yeah. did a full sweep of their files and came forward with the stuff that they found. But alas, the stuff they found wasn't great. One of the main things, really, is... so. 
this case rested almost entirely on Sodder's emails um, between yeah. these various banks and entities. And there's tons of them. And the defense had suspected for a long time that these actually came from the Manhattan DA's investigation and were thus from a state search warrant that authorized only looking for violations of state crimes. Mm -hmm. And turns out that uh, in going through all of its files and stuff, the government realizes that the FBI was actually running hundreds of raw searches on the subpoena returns looking for federal crimes, which oh, man. is almost certainly unconstitutional. And if they were to reopen pretrial litigation over the admissibility of this key evidence, it would almost certainly have gotten spoiled um, because yeah. it seems pretty clear that the FBI was not handling that properly and they could have gotten a new search warrant, but they didn't. And so that's a big problem because basically the bulk of their evidence is potentially inadmissible now. And then another big one is that uh, Sauter has an unindicted co-conspirator in this case, mm -hmm. um, this guy whose last name is Karimi, and he was indicted but not arrested. And he was interviewed by Canadian police at one point, and the government provided with the defense summary notes of that interview, but they're yeah. pretty basic. They don't provide a ton of detail, and it sort of just fits largely with the government's narrative, which is kind of what you'd expect. And... The defense is trying to get its hands on the actual recording of this interview for a very long time, pre-trial. And the government is basically continually saying, well, we don't have it. The FBI is still working on getting it from the Canadians. It's in transit, yeah, yeah. so on and so forth. Well, it turns out that it had actually been sitting in an FBI field office in Manhattan since February. So over a mm -hmm. month before trial. And so the de defense finally gets their hands on it, and they say that it has highly exculpatory value, namely that Karimi did not think that they were violating sanctions and that the transactions were vetted and they thought they were above board. And this is key because the government's theory was that Sadr and Karimi were intentionally breaking sanctions, right? They have to prove that it was intentional and they meant to yep. do it. And this is evidence that they didn't think they were doing anything wrong. And so, what so that's another big one. Yeah, well, I mean, so it, and that's there, and there's more, as you said. I mean, those are those are the, kind of the highlights. Uh, where does that leave us? I mean, they had a they had a they had a jury they, they they had a trial win in hand, and then all this stuff comes out. What happens next? Well, what happens next is fairly remarkable. Um, one of the unit chiefs who oversees all the attorneys in the case, uh, he makes an appearance, and the same day he files what's called a letter of nolle prosequi, which I might be mispronouncing, but uh, basically it is a declaration that the government no longer wants to pursue a case. They say it would no longer be in the interests of justice to pursue this case. And they cite, in general terms, sort of the myriad errors that really impact and acknowledge that they really impacted Sauter's ability to defend himself. Because if he had had access mm -hmm. to this information pre-trial, it would have completely changed his strategy. And the government acknowledged this and also, as I mentioned with the admissibility of evidence, noted that if they were to reopen litigation yeah. over the admissibility, that would be a pretty bruising round for them before a judge who their credibility has been you know, shredded at this point and the defense right. team is on the offensive and they're coming off of some wins and it, it wouldn't have been great for them. So this, I mean, the, this, this Sodder case, I mean, this would have been a pretty big story in any context, but I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about the fact that it happened to unfold in, in the Southern District of New York, which 
I think most people know uh, is just uh, the the elite enclave of federal prosecutors, you know, the best of the best it's supposed to be. Talk about the dynamics of the court a little bit and why it's such a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Manhattan is a financial capital of the world. And yeah. basically any transaction denominated in dollars that passes through it is subject to the jurisdiction of SDNY. So it's where a lot of the biggest financial frauds happen and tons of really high stakes cases. These, as you mentioned, are some of the most talented federal prosecutors in the country. And they're going up against some of the most talented and experienced defense attorneys in the country who work for these white shoe firms right there in Manhattan. And a lot of times the top partners at those defense firms are longtime veterans of SDNY, you know, the former bosses of these yeah. prosecutors who are now trying these cases. And it's a really interesting dynamic in that respect. And, you know, prosecutors, of course, vehemently deny this characterization. But if you talk to defense attorneys, they'll say that this this prestige kind of works in the favor of prosecutors because mm-hmm. judges tend to sort of defer to them and give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, plenty of times judges are former prosecutors themselves. And so what some defense attorneys will tell you is that this happens a lot in SDNY because these prosecutors sort of feel like they can get away with it and judges will give them the benefit of the doubt. And if stuff does come out, the judges will say, well, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. You know, yeah. this this wasn't a big deal, whatever. And, you know, there are some recent examples, too, of this happening. And two of them coincided with the Sodder case. Um, both of them had to deal with, you know, withheld evidence. And mm-hmm. the judges in both of those cases found that the conduct wasn't intentional after some briefing on the matters and similar but much shorter briefing than what happened with Sodder. Uh, determined that it wasn't on purpose, but still called the failures, you know, inexcusable, said they can't be repeated. Um, there was another infamous case in 2018 in SDNY. It was a murder trial against a man named Robert Pizarro. And just days before trial, the government revealed that they had um, a uh, another suspect had confessed to a police yeah. informant. And they didn't buy the conviction, but it was a pretty big blow up and it delayed the trial for four months. This was before Judge Nathan's court, actually, which is an interesting mm-hmm. wrinkle here and perhaps explains why she was so livid about this. And... Um, Basically, the Manhattan, like the leadership of the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office came down hat in hand, similar thing. They went before Judge Nathan. They said, we're going to make changes top to bottom. This is never going to happen again. And as Judge Nathan notes in two of her written rebukes from the bench in the Sodder case, uh, it sort of belies those assurances in her words. Well, and that gets to a bigger issue. We can we can get you out of here on this as a matter of sort of. Uh, broader impact to the office. You wrote that, you know, this 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 sort of evidence mishandling episode deeply shook the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office. What sort of fallout are we looking at here? Well, yeah, the, the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office has promised to make some major, major internal changes for this would be at least the second time since 2018 with the Bizarro case. And just overhauling its discovery policies, training policies, they submitted detailed descriptions of all of this to the court. And You know, it really sort of raises the stakes for Joe Biden as he's choosing whether or not to keep U.S. Attorney Andre Strauss in her place or potentially pick his own Senate confirmed replacement because whoever's running the office is going to be in charge of ensuring that these internal reforms stick and are effective and prevent this type of thing from happening. And, you know, this also should get the attention of uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, who could take this as an opportunity to do a wider review of these types of Brady issues and discovery policies in U.S. attorney's offices across the country. 
it's a fascinating story, um, and uh, I encourage everyone to read Jack's story in full to get a fuller picture of it. But this was a, a, a really interesting discussion, Jack. Thanks for coming on Pro Se. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Anytime. Our show is something offbeat, and Bill, I know you have a sports-related one for us today. Yeah, I mean, March Madness starts tonight. Uh, it's here, so obviously that means that it's time to talk about vasectomies here on our not on our, I on our legal podcast to March Madness. Uh, please tell us how well, that is related. Well, hang on. Before Bill gets into it, I just want to say, as a matter of just my own personal you know, sort of worldview. I like my basketball like I like my vasectomies, which is I like to see it done by professionals. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure. so interested sure. in the wow. I'm not so interested in the amateur game either through see, I, basketball. I prefer going I prefer going to a discount <laughs> clinic, uh, you oh, know, okay. at a medical school and uh, you know, <laughs> amateur. Yeah. Great guys, uh, great. So 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 what's going on here? Yeah, so in a very strange turn of events, uh, the National Collegiate Athletic Association made uh, headlines this week over a trademark case it filed against a Virginia urology uh, clinic. Uh, the, the issue in the case was that the urologists wanted to use the term vasectomy mayhem to promote the, uh, the practice. The NCAA says, as is often the case in trademark cases, they say that the, 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 the use of that name was confusingly similar to their own trademarks. They obviously own March Madness, but they also own a sort of similar trademark for March Mayhem. And they said that clearly consumers would think that they were somehow connected with this urology office. I don't like the term <laughs> vasectomy mayhem. That sounds awful. Just even if you know it's about March Madness somehow, still sounds bad. But it sounds. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I'm no. I'm no branding expert, but I, I don't think that many prospective patients want to associate their vasectomy surgery with mayhem. No, not at all. But why did they even choose this in March? It's it's weird. Well, that's the fun, weird part of this story, right? So the, the urologists appear to have picked this name because there's this weird phenomenon that shows that vasectomy appointments tend to surge in mid to late March. The best oh. theory uh, is is that a lot of men schedule these things so that they can recover on the couch while, you know, the tournament is playing out. Urology offices have seen that research and have leaned into the trend and have started urging men through their advertisements to do exactly that. I don't know if that's, so that's true, but like the fact that somebody like ran the numbers on that and like that is shaping like business strategy is very cool to me. This seems sure. like a classic example <laughs> that I would have learned in some, um, you know, some logic class in college about not making these kind of unsubstantiated connections in data. Yeah, this is the dark timeline that Don Draper went down in Mad Men. He figured this out. <laughs> and he, he, uh, anyway, um, so that's what this, uh, this urology office is just called Virginia Urology. That's what they uh, seem to have done here. Their, their first stab at this was calling it um, 
vasectomy madness, which is obviously even closer to March Madness. And they they released ads that that very clearly played on sort of the connection here. So Steve, roll the tape. Here's a genius hoops madness idea. In order to legitimately spend three days on the couch watching hoops, wife totally supporting your lounging, call Virginia Urology right now and schedule your vasectomy. Hey, no better time to get it done. But you gotta call now to align your couch time with optimal tube time for the best games. Hey, this isn't madness. It just makes good sense. Okay, <laughs> I hate I hate everything about this. I just want to go on record saying this paints wives and women in general in such a negative light. Like, hey, want to get your nagging wife off your back while you yeah. watch basketball? You're going to need a surgery for that. It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a whole nother bucket here to talk about the sort of inherent misogyny of the yeah. the uh, advertising campaign in general. But let's not dive into that no, for now. Just let's just keep talking about this. <laughs> Um, no, I'm, I'm with you. It sort of it has it has that sort of sitcommy, uh, you know, beer commercial kind of trope vibe to it. But so Kevin James is involved. The, yeah, let's talk about the actual case though. Does the NCAA have a a good case here? Well, it's interesting because so after they did that, the NCAA went after them the first time, and that was a couple of years ago, and they settled that case, and the NCAA did what it often does, which is they they took over the trademark and then licensed it back. It was a whole thing. They settled, and and it appeared to be behind them, but then they rolled out this this vasectomy mayhem name, and and they actually <laughs> succeeded in quietly getting their own trademark registration on it. So what the NCAA did th- did this year is they they figured that out. And they went after them again and asked the the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to invalidate this trademark. So, Amber, you mentioned like what what you know does this make sense? And I think the context here is important, which is that the NCAA is very similar to the NFL with the Super Bowl or the Oscars with with um, or sorry the Academy with the Oscars. Yeah, they are very very aggressive about how they police the use of these names because they are big events and people want to tie themselves to them to you know get the get all the people who are paying attention to those events to then buy their stuff so it kind of makes sense i mean they make most of their money from licensing these trademarks um so that you know they want they really really want to make sure that nobody else can do that for free and they they you know they they view it as let's just go you know all the way and that way, no one will even think to do this kind of stuff. But part of implementing that strategy means doing stuff like this, where people are going to notice and sort of ask questions about, like, did you need to do that? Because um, this one does feel <laughs> a little bit like a stretch, right? Like, these urologists certainly tried to call to mind the tournament. I mean, no one would argue otherwise. They, yeah. they made all those allusions yeah, they, to basketball. That's It's literally what they're doing. There's basketball but noises think, in the background of the commercial, whistles <laughs> yeah. and such. Exactly. And but but, you know, I think a, would a consumer view that and think that there had been this official sponsorship deal? It's that's that's harder to say, especially in an era where, you know, they do police it this much. And and anything out there that clearly makes a point to say we are sponsored by the NCAA. It's so it's it's hard to say. I, t- I talked to a lot of experts this week about this case and, um, you know, people said it could go either way. I, I had one expert say that it was flat out just trademark bullying that they were, you know, going after this little player. Other people said that the the urologist was wrong, that they were tr- clearly trying to draw a connection here. I thought the most interesting part was I talked to the NCAA's longtime outside counsel who has been doing this for like 15, 20 years. 
Um, and, and he gave me a good quote that I wanted to read. So, quote, it would be one thing if they had said, hey, there's going to be a lot of basketball on in March. If you're a college basketball fan, come schedule your vasectomy. We wouldn't have written them a letter. We wouldn't do anything. But if you want to use our marks and our imagery and create a brand and a campaign that leverages off of that, then we're going to have a problem. So I think the idea here is that they they view it as like if you were just alluding to this in your advertising or on social media or whatever, like that would be a different question. But you went and tried to get your own trademarks for it. So it's just it's a it's a fun look at, you know, how this like multi-billion dollar operation that how valuable they viewed, you know, protecting protecting this name that that's where that's their moneymaker. You've it, you've done like a really good, I think, like academic breakdown of this. I just want to say uh, the more I the more I dwell on this vasectomy mayhem really sounds like a spinal tap album i just want to say that that was that was like stuck in my head and i can see the imagery uh very vividly um, and my yes, only, it's a fa- fascinating case and my only takeaway from this entire segment is going to be the weird fact that vasectomies skyrocket in march that's so strange <laughs> i well, i was able to leave day. you guys with with some important information well on that important note i think we'll wrap up today's show thanks for being with me today bill See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Jack Queen, and reporters, Dorothy Adkins and Craig Clough. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like our show, we'd love for you to leave a written review wherever you listen to podcasts so that other people can find us more easily. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.